and welcome to the program. Charles Moskowitz, Monday through Friday, 12 noon, live at YouTube and at other subscribing platforms. Anne Hendershot is my guest for this segment. Uh, Anne is a sociologist and a sociology professor. She's the author of the new upcoming book, The Politics of Envy. Anne, thanks for joining me today. Hi, it's good to be here, Charles. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. Now, I, I just want to start by asking you a little bit about sociology, because <laughs> I'm a student of sociology, a, a, a degree student here in Boston. And I've noticed that the, um, the, the department and the professors and the, the, the whole science of sociology is very liberal left. And yet, sociology as a science per se is open to some very politically incorrect research and, and it doesn't necessarily have to be. And uh, I think that had C. Wright Mills lived, um, he probably would not have been because he was, an, he was intellectually vigorous and honest and his, uh, his view of the sociological imagination, I think it would have led him away from the left, but of course we can't know that because he passed away at a young age and um, is a very fascinating uh, figure. Um, I guess that I want to start by just asking you if you could give a little thumbnail on your experience as a sociologist. Well, I've been a sociologist for a very long time, and I got into it just because I'm such a curious person. I'm always wondering why people do what they do. Since I was little, I always wondered, you know, why do people do buy the things they buy or commit the crimes they... And sociology answered those questions, and they did it with data. Science. I mean, they sociology is an easy major, and there's no getting around it. But if if you like statistics and data, this is the major for you because you can show things very clearly, and that's why sociologists have really lost their way. They don't want to look at data sometimes. When I go to the major meetings, they hide data. <laughs> you know, nobody wants to talk about the data on things oh, like yes. the outcomes data on crime and incarceration. I mean, people don't want to know these things. You know, the, the police data, it's easier to just make stuff up, but sociologists should be willing to look at the data, like you said, no matter where it brings you. But oh, you absolutely. Don't want to. I mean, sociology should be the science and the art of looking at a society as a whole and all of the elements and aspects that make up that society rather than trying to skew it. And I guess that they can skew it in the same way that you can skew polls, but it Absolutely. depends on the question you ask. It depends on how you ask it, you know, where, who you ask, where you ask. I mean, it can be rigged. Let's just face it. I mean, of and course, to a certain extent, that's possible, probably inevitable because we are all human beings with biases, but it's the responsibility of, of the uh, honest sociologist to try to avoid that and try to steer things in the direction of factual um, accumulation of evidence and, and a presentation of what, what's actually going on. Right, all of that data can be skewed, but actually existing data like crime rate data, incarceration rate data, that's not as often skewed. And so mm -hmm. that when we present Department of Justice data and we, we use the data and we manipulate it and try to do correlations by race and by social class, you can't really skew that as much. Now, polling data, of course, you can push people into one direction, one candidate or another, and that's what pollers do. You know, polling data can always be manipulated. 
Oh, yeah. and, all, and also there are certain situations where the government will not release certain data. Oh, I know. It's not appropriate. I'll just mention one example, and that is the, the, that the, uh, the FBI has kept statistics going all the way back to the numbers of crimes that have been committed by undocumented aliens and that that information will not be released. And there have been organizations that have tried to get uh, Freedom of Information Act to release it and they still will not get it. So, you know, I, as the, um, you know, the, to paraphrase the movie, A Few Good Men, you know, I want the truth and I can handle <laughs> You can't it. handle the truth. <laughs> So I think you can handle the truth. That's right. And we'll all make up our own judgment because I trust people's ability to do so. Now, your book, The, Pro the Politics of Envy, you take a look at, uh, at the Black Lives Matter movement and you claim that it goes beyond social justice and talk about the, the philosophical basis of it, which is that it stokes envy in society. But um, you know, I want to hit play a little bit of a devil's advocate here because um, when I mentioned that I was having you on this show, a, a very liberal member of my family went ballistic and said, what about systemic racism? What about the fact that black people earn less money than, this, than, than white people for the same job and that, you know, you see black professors and not or men of color, women of color, not getting tenure at colleges, whereas white people do, and that these things are, and, and prisons, these things are examples of systemic racism. So, you know, ostensibly the Black Lives Matter movement is uh, trying to address that problem. And I think that statistically, that is a problem. What say you? I don't see it as systemic racism. Mm -hmm. I think certainly racism exists. Nobody can deny that. But I don't see it as an overarching theme. And I don't see that as the Black Lives Matter real goal. I think the real goal of Black Lives Matter is a revolution to oh, yeah. completely change society. And Black Lives Matter is a sort of sideshow of that. Um, no, I agree with you. And I think that I've done some programs on this and I've looked at the people behind Black Lives Matter, the founders of Black Lives Matter are open and, and self-avowed communists and have said so publicly and that they have been trained by this guy who was formerly in the weather underground and there's money pouring in from George Soros. And, you know, I mean, I think we can document the fact that this is a communist group that has a, a, a revolutionary agenda. However, in my neighborhood near Boston, I actually live in Boston, but I see the Black Lives Matter signs propped up on usually wealthy white suburban <laughs> properties. You know? that. And I think that the Black Lives Matter movement itself is predominantly white. I mean, it's probably 95% white people and wealthy people and suburban people who don't live in the city. Um, and, and I think that they don't understand, I don't think that they're supporting Black Lives Matter because they know that it's a communist group. They don't know that because the media doesn't discuss it they genuinely want to talk about systemic racism. They want to talk about the- Well, they're good people, yes. That's right. They, I mean, they are well-meaning, assumedly, not all, but you know, enough of them. And you know, they want to show a flag because they want to do something, at least, even if symbolic, to say that they are aware of the fact that there, have, there are inequities between the races in this country. So 
the Black Lives Matter, as bad as it is, and, and as uh, we can talk about that, it, you know, it does tap into a real problem. And I think that we need to maybe even form an organization or at least speak out on behalf of this problem from a non-communist standpoint, you know, from a freedom right. standpoint and how to address it. But yet the start of that is to acknowledge that it exists. And I think it does exist. Yeah, I think you're right. You're absolutely right. There is, we can't deny that there's racism. There is racism in society, but Black Lives Matter is not the answer. Right. Black well, Lives is Matter is part of the problem. Well, I think confronting it directly and looking at where there is racism and then confronting those instances where it is. And I think President Trump, and I know some of your listeners may not agree with him, but he's doing a great job with looking at the criminal justice system very closely and looking at the racist policies that were there that actually Biden put in, um, right. in that crime bill he put in in 94 and even worse in the 80s. The over-incarceration is due oh, to yeah. mandatory sentencing that has punished Blacks disproportionately. Absolutely, you, you and I can completely agree, and most of your listeners, that Blacks have been disproportionately punished. The powder cocaine, the crack cocaine differential, it, that was outrageous. And nobody really did much about that until fairly recently. Nobody seemed to care. And the mandatory sentencing has been even worse in the confiscation, taking people's cars, houses. I mean, I, I guess I'm a bit of a libertarian about that. That infuriates me. And Biden was one of the worst oh, yeah. in terms yeah. of promoting that kind of over-incarceration of African-Americans. No, Critical race theory isn't the answer either. Critical race theory I'm especially <laughs> disdainful of because I see that as completely envy-driven. Um, you know, they're getting more than you are. Aren't you mad about that? And they've kept you down all these years. That's the message of critical race theory. And I think that's yes. the problem. No, I, it goes into the sort of micro uh, and aggressive theories and, and all these other crackpot uh, theories that unfortunately <laughs> came from certain sociologists. I would particularly- I know. Point, <laughs> I, I would point a finger particularly at Charles Pierce of Harvard back in the 1980s who came up with this whole microaggression thing where you put everyone under a microscope and try to find a racist gene. You know, it's like, and I think in a way it's a reflection of how far we have come as a society. We no longer have in a big way, you know, outright open racism where people are like, you don't come and work here because we don't like black people. You know, you don't have that now. I think yeah. we've gotten over that for the most part. I'm not saying it doesn't ever happen, but so, so now they take out the microscope and they look at, well, in 1959, you were seen in a hotel room, a hotel lobby with David Duke, you know, something, you yeah. must be racist. And then they destroy your career. And you notice they only do it to people that aren't on the left. Um, it's, it's a political football and it trivializes continued uh, racial inequities in, in this country. You know, you're right to point out that um, President Trump has assigned the first uh, step act which released approximately 10,000 men from prison who had been there for minor crimes uh, like 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 a minor marijuana crime and and, and probably 90 percent of them are black and that that's the first step as it says and also in education he supports school choice so that a, a poor or a low-income black kid in the inner city can get out of those rotten public schools where they're being indoctrinated and maybe get into a charter school or get into a private school and that you can get a tax credit 
for financing that. You know, this has been around for a long time and President Trump supports it. So, you know, right. we can talk about real racism and we could talk about policies that are actually trying to erase these remaining racial uh, barriers, whether they were real or intended or not. And I think that that they are doing that. But I want to get into your your analysis of um, of envy. And um, I mean, this is seems to me to be a classic founding block of the Marxist idea, which is that you look at the guy living down the street from you who has more than you. He has a better house than you. He has a nicer wife than you have. You know, he's got a better car. <laughs> And you say, hey, I'm, I'm envious, I'm jealous. I want, either I want some of that or I want to have it taken away from him because it bothers me. Because he doesn't me, deserve it. He doesn't deserve it or it makes me feel like a failure when I see it and I don't like that feeling. So I want it taken away from him. And then you have a politician come along and say, hey, it's not fair that he has that. We will take it away from him. And we'll maybe give a little of it to you, but at least we're gonna remove it from him so that you're equal. And, and it's an appeal to envy. And of course the end result of that is that both sides end up poor. I know, and that's the problem with envy. It cuts both the person who's envying and the person who is being envied. And that's why I find it, um, I see it just growing, especially in this primary time, in the primary time, Elizabeth Warren, de Blasio, at one point, Mayor de Blasio said, there's plenty of money in New York, it's just in the wrong hands. So he was pretty much saying, I'm just gonna spread it around. Obama said that to Joe the plumber. That's, That's really right. when I started noticing, you know, you know, I'm gonna get you some more. And Joe the plumber didn't wanna take it away from somebody else, he just, wanted to have yeah. a better life, you know? It's like you didn't build that. I mean, Elizabeth Warren started oh, that mantra. That drives me crazy. And, and the millionaires and the billionaires. In other words, it's, it's, a, it, it's appealing to the darker side of our personalities. We all have some envy at times. You know, we, we look at different situations. Oh, and, yeah. But we know that it's wrong. We know that it's not, you know, the better side of our nature. And this particular ideology appeals to that side. It normalizes it. And it says, you deserve to have something that you didn't earn just because you exist, because you want it. You know, you didn't have to right. do anything. I mean, the guy taking the house away from his neighbor, he didn't do anything to, to, to warrant that. It's just, he wants it. And therefore the government is gonna give it to him in the name of this fuzzy idea of equity that somehow everyone deserves. Yeah, social justice. <laughs> well, well, that's right, which itself is a concept that has been perverted because oh, I know. social justice, I mean, depends on the eye of the beholder. I mean, I think social justice could be the death penalty for someone who commits murder. That's social justice, you know, well, but, but <laughs> we can talk, about, I mean, I just, I mean, when you hear that word, you have to ask. That's not exactly the way the social social justice warriors would would identify it. But I think envy has reached that, and especially in our politics, but it is, isn't just politics, it's spilled over. I mean, the guillotine in front of Jeff Bezos' house, you know, Amazon has a lot of money. He's made yeah. a lot of money. He's the richest guy ever yes. and gets richer by the minute. It's I just got an Amazon delivery. I just made him richer. Sure. But does he deserve a guillotine in front of his house? I mean, there is this French Revolution kind of stuff going on right now. And I think the politics of envy always ends with a guillotine or the firing squad. 
Oh, it does. And, and every communist revolution has usually, and this is something that the revolutionaries either avoid thinking about or they forget, is that it is they themselves that are going to be the first people to be put on the, on the block, you know, <laughs> I know. right? I mean, you look at the, the, so, the, uh, the Russian revolution, I mean, or, or for that matter, Hitler, who I think was a socialist, they yeah. turned the knives on their own dissenters. You know, they got rid of their own intellectuals and their own, you know, property owners first, and then they focused on other enemies. So, you know, if, if people like AOC and them think that they're going to come to power and redistribute the wealth, their friends will be the first ones that, that are going to end up facing the, the firing squad. It's true. Her staff, it, her staff members are some of the most envious people. This Dan Riffle that works for her, he's her aide and his Twitter handle is every billionaire policy failure. He grew up in a trailer park. He didn't have much money. He always gives that sob story and he hates his co-workers because they don't, they didn't have a hard life. So he's very envious of them. You can tell because he talks about them. He said, I came to Capitol Hill expecting, you know, to burn it down and they don't want to burn it down. They like things the way they are. Those are his co-workers he's talking about. So he's just a very envious guy. So I, I try to capture that kind of envy rhetoric and there's a lot of it in her staff and on the staff of many. I mean, I'm finding it everywhere and yep. you, you see it. And, and Bernie Sanders staff. Oh, absolutely. And, and they're banking on the fact that they're going to whip up enough anger and envy and other of the more unsavory aspects of all of us and to right. get people to go and overthrow the government on, uh, by election or, or by stuffing the ballot box or however they're planning on doing it. Yeah, I think they'll be all of the above. <laughs> right. That's right. And it's a very troubling and, and um, time. That, that we should be concerned about all it worries of me i make light of it but we shouldn't make light of this because this is very frightening this twitter ex-ceo who i think is envious he's not in the game anymore he got fired um i don't know if you read about that but he said that any ceo that is not engaged in social justice work with his staff should be lined up and shot he just sounds said like, that Sounds recently. like Fidel Castro, right? Well, yeah. And he said he would videotape it. He tweeted that. And Twitter allowed it to stay because he used to work for Twitter. Or Twitter. He was the CEO until he got mm. fired a few years ago. So Well, Twitter allows a lot of stuff can, to stay. Yeah. So he <laughs> and, kind of jeers from not to. Well, I know, but the rhetoric is really getting overheated and scares me a little bit. Oh, yeah. I mean, we should recall that Fidel Castro, when he came to power for the first year, there was a constant, continuous firing squad of, of people that disagreed with his regime. It's I frightening. Think there was about 15,000 people who were Was who were it shot. really that much? Yeah. I didn't realize that. I mean, over a two-year period. But, wow. uh, you know, so, you know, th that's what, what they're talking about. They have a very incoherent idea of what they want to do if they do get power. The whole communist adventure is very incoherent about that. I mean, Marx never really wrote about communism. He just wrote about try getting, getting there, how to achieve it through, through stages. Okay. But he said very little about the actual policy and what, what it was like. He just said that governments would wither away and that we would have the one quote is from each according to his ability to each according to his need. According to the and that need. was about it. So, you know, they don't know where they're going with this. They want to tear down existing institutions, which they believe are false and uh, were created as a part of a conspiracy by rich people to benefit rich people. 
And, and they think that somehow if they do that, some kind of a fuzzy, beautiful utopia is going to suddenly break out. History doesn't show it. No, it doesn't. And it always shows that the confiscation is always accompanied by violence, because that's really the only way you can get what you want from people is you have to take it violently, usually. I mean, I'm not going to give up my house easily. No. And I, I don't, don't have a gun or anything. But I, 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 no, not, absolutely not. But you're going to have I, a hard time taking it. If you'll notice, right now in this country, gun sales are up by hundreds I know. of thousands across the country. So now you live in Boston, I live in Connecticut. We don't usually have guns in these places. No. Although, but, you know something, Connecticut's a big gun state. And so I know it. that. I, I had so no idea. Vermont. Yeah, Vermont is apparently, Bernie Sanders, Vermont, I think it's it has so funny. per capita the highest numbers of private owners of guns to the population. So yeah, that's not even a liberal conservative issue. I mean, when it comes down to it. No, it really isn't. Right, right. Yeah. So. But I know. see envy everywhere. And you know, politics is downstream. You know, you're a sociologist, mm -hmm. downstream from culture. And um, the culture of envy is strong. I mean, I even see it in the church. I teach at a Catholic university and Pope Francis just came out with a new encyclical. And he uses the language of the French Revolution. What's honestly, what, 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 I, I'm not Catholic, but I'm concerned about that because I admire the Catholic Church as a great moral beacon in the world and a, and a great well, we, uh, we always have been, <laughs> of course. And, and so, I am concerned when I hear him making these different comments. Well, he's the whole the, encyclical is bashing is the, capitalism. With him? I mean, he's uh, I, I mean, I've heard you know, I don't know, I'm not trying to point a finger here, but a, as an Argentinian bishop, I've heard that he was a Peronist. Well, The Economist just did a, a couple of years ago, in fact, I write about it in the book, calling him the Peronist Pope. Rush Limbaugh has called him the Marxist Pope and, and you know, I think he is kind of a Marxist, although he never says that. But one of the subtitles in this encyclical that came out this week, I just wrote about it, is looks, it, it uses the language of the French Revolution egalitarianism, liberty, freedom. Might they remember fraternity. that the French Revolution executed how many priests and bishops? No, does he not know that? Yeah, I mean, I think that history there is not good. And, yes, and the, not the, kind the, to Catholics. You know, the, the reaction, the, um, the uh, I, what was the term, the Durangists, or the, the, were, were Catholic and were, were, were people in the countryside who were private property owners who basically got rid of the, um, the reign of terror. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, that led to Napoleon, who was still a revolutionary, but not, you know, pretty moderate by comparison. So, you know, I, I think we need to, the Pope needs to look at his history books, maybe. Yeah, he does. But, uh, or, I mean, the reason the church is, is alive is because of capitalism and people donating. And still, he doesn't seem to remember that. But I think it is the Argentinian roots. So I, I try to forgive him for that a little bit. But it's hard, you know. But I think that the, the church itself still has a strong moral compass. I mean, there's enough oh, people. Oh, absolutely. There's enough people. I mean, this we're talking about the you know, the, the oldest and the most vast religious organization in history. I, I think that hopefully there's enough, you know, they've got enough institutional diversity, as you will, if if you will, to keep keep the ship of state flying right, regardless oh, yeah. of the Pope. I mean, and there have been other popes in the past that have 
gone off the rails. Not to say <laughs> that he's gone off the rails, but <laughs> we've had some we've had some bad ones. No, I understand. So you know the politics of envy. You know, I don't think this election has flown as much as it has in the past, and yet it's pretty bad. What do you think is going to happen in in a few weeks on election day? Uh, it's hard to say. <laughs> I don't is. think Joe Biden's going to answer any questions, you know, about stacking the Supreme Court. He's he's so careful about not offending any of his base or anybody. So I I have no idea. It depends <sighs> on how the voting goes. It's it's frightful when you look at the Drudge Report and they they keep saying Biden is ahead by twenty and he's ahead by eighteen and. I, oh, I mean, I, I, I read that stuff in my heart. It sense. makes I mean, me very I, nervous. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that it might be. I want to think that it's uh, these are, are suppression polls that that are trying to demoralize the opposition. Now you have Nancy Pelosi submitting a bill to have President <laughs> Trump removed from office because I know because the Twenty Fifth Amendment mentally unfit because of the COVID disease. I don't think yeah. there's any evidence that COVID makes you mentally unfit. No, you know, it, it's, uh, I mean, well, she, I think she's saying the steroids are making him mentally and unfit. Well, maybe they might have a little influence, but not mentally unfit. I mean, it's, but you uh, know, nobody in Connecticut is putting a Trump sign. I, I'm in favor of Trump. I would like to see him win, understood. but I don't have a sign in front of my house. I can tell you that well, much. That's, I don't you know, you're touching upon an interesting subject because I think that a lot of people, and this happened the last election, they do not want it to be publicly known that, that they're no. supporting Trump. For good reason. It's you can uh, you can lose you could hurt your career. It could hurt your your standing, and you could you could end up being attacked and oh, yeah. uh, denounced, and people are going to cut ties with you. It's so it's very ugly. So I think that uh, you know people are waiting for election day, and then in the privacy of the booth, they're going to vote for him. And I hope in well, that's in what I'm hoping, know. but I who knows? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't well, know. So do you think there's any possibility, Anne, that there may be uh, in, in sociology, a, the development of conservative sociology? Because I know that sociology over the years has developed many of its own sort of sub schools. I mean, uh, like for example, La Belle Hooks developed feminist sociology. Very right. interesting writer, by the way. Um, and, and she did it based upon her personal experience growing up as a woman. Um, and I think that she brought some things to the table. Maybe certainly there was the aspect of envy that does play a role. But I'm wondering, is, is there the possibility of developing conservative sociology? I mean, you could be a leader in that. I'll join you. <laughs> I, I mean, would love I, that. If you I mean, when you develop... look at, I mean, we would have great predecessors. Daniel Patrick Moynihan was oh, a hero yes. of mine, a huge. I wrote a book called The Politics of Deviance, and I started with his defining deviancy down statement. He, he was one of the best. He and, was, and he was a sociologist. And, uh, a sociologist course, is a Democrat. He was, and a liberal, basically. And he, uh, oh, yeah. he under Secretary of Labor in the Johnson administration, where he wrote right. that report that discouraged the nationalization of welfare because he said it would damage the uh, black family in particular and all families. And he was right. You know, I right. mean, bef before that, he shows that the black family, black marriage was intact. It was very high, in some cases, higher than white. And that by putting, getting people into welfare and 
making it into this national program that did not consider the individual or the specifics of, of someone's situation, they would, would, would establish an incentive to, uh, to not get married and to have the man get out of the house and then an additional incentive to have children. And that's exactly what's happened. He was exactly right. It would right. be hard for him to say that today, though, even though he had real data he to did. show that when there's not a father in the house, there's going to be a problem with the boys in that house. That's right. Exactly. And, um, you know, that's uh, he, he was very prophetic in that way. And I, I think that if we had real sociology actually examining uh, social problems in, in the society, we may really learn something. So, Anne, I hope that you are a leader in starting a conservative <laughs> well, only if you come along. I, I could be, see you I and would, I at the ASA meetings. I'd be happy to work with you. I'll write articles if you want to set it up. I'll do research. That would be so wonderful. And we could, I'm sure there are some other people that are going to come Oh, there out are. The closet, you know, there you know. are. Because <laughs> I have students come to me who want to go to grad school and they're conservative and they're afraid. And I sort of steer them to grad school where there might be one or two. There well, are we, a few. We can start a movement. You know, we can, we can do a... <laughs> I would love a, that. We could, we could do a counter revolution. So let's let's just talk a little bit more about your book. It's out as of today, I think. You just released it. And um, you know, you you get into the very specific and and insidious and corrosive um, elements of the politics of envy. Um, you know, you talk about Black Lives Matter as a as a template for promoting this kind of politics. And, uh, you know, I think you contrast that with politics that might actually contribute toward Black people achieving and overcoming uh, racism, assuming that it is that pervasive. And by the way, if it is that pervasive, that's all the more reason why you would want to advance uh, policies and, and ideas and philosophy that would help people come out of it. And rather than focus on hating white people and hating America and looking at the past and emphasizing the most negative, you want to empower people to, uh, to achieve on their own and, and to overcome that. And look, I'm Jewish and I could tell you that my, my grandparents didn't let anti-Semitism stand in the way when they, they came to this country. I mean, my father, for example, when he was a young man, he wanted to, my late father, he wanted to have a, a, a boat and he wanted to join a yacht club and as we could keep the boat. And in Boston, there was the, the yacht club he wanted to join was anti-Semitic, no Jews allowed. And this was true in a lot of the yacht clubs. So what happened is that he got together with other Jewish and non-Jewish boat owners and they formed their own yacht club. And, they, and it turned out to be a very good, one of the best yacht clubs in Boston. And eventually the anti-Semitic yacht clubs let their guard down and they allowed you know, reciprocal relations so that they could, you know, stop at each other's docks. So I'm saying that, that you know, rather than sit around and complain about, you know, the anti-Semitism, yeah. find a way to, to advance yourself and to, to get your goals done. And when you do that and you do it in good faith, then it breaks down those kinds of barriers. But right, you're absolutely that's right. An, that's just an, a personal and a, and yeah, instead of whining about, you know, they don't let us in, you empower yourself and yeah. empower others, mobilize. Yeah, that is the best way to do it. And I try to look at envy historically, too. 
I think there was a lot of envy um, in Nazi Germany against the Jews who were very successful. Right. Hitler really resented and envied their, their strong families, their strong attachments and their success. Yes, and, and that, that was- People exploited. don't realize that. Oh no, absolutely. I mean, the Jews had were particularly big in Germany in the retail business. There's a lot of big stores, and you know, I think that the Nazis exploited that kind of envy as a way to consolidate their power. And you know, I, I'm not saying I don't want to sound like I'm being hyperbolic here, but if you take a look at some of the speeches of somebody like, for example, Elizabeth Warren, when she talks about corporate greed and she talks about yeah. the millionaires and the billionaires. And if you take those words and you replace the word with Jew, that could have come out of the mouth of Hitler. You know, in other words, look at these people, they're successful. Somehow their success is as a result of having ripped you off. They are responsible right. for your misery. It's, it's a vicious conspiracy theory and a lie that if anything, their success has empowered you. You know, we could take a look and at- And made your life better. Yeah, look at, look at for example, Bill Gates and, uh, and Steve, the late Steve Jobs, they harnessed the power of the internet and they had the vision to do that at a time when it was not well known. And they had the skills as businessmen to, to, to bring together skilled people to create this incredible thing that changed the way we do business. And in the process, they made themselves extremely rich and they made many other people extremely rich, but they also created hundreds of thousands of new jobs and new opportunities. They gave us the ability to do this right now, do what, what we're, we're doing. doing now. And we and people, should thank them. We should thank them. And we should also realize that some guy working in a warehouse or somebody working as a clerk in, a, in an Apple store, everyone has more opportunity as a result. And they actually created wealth where there was none before. These things are good. Wealth is good. <laughs> You know, celebrate them. <laughs> I know. I know. I sound like it that is. movie where he says greed is good. I'm not Gordon saying that. Gecko. Yeah, that's, you're I'm, very Gordon Gecko here. Well, yeah, but, but I'm not. True. I, and I'm not saying greed is good. I'm saying no, wealth it's not. is good. Success is good, and that it tends to have a, a concentric effect in that it, it improves the lives of everyone. It's it not. Does. It's a. You know, they point to like examples of corporate corruption. Well, fine, that's true. But, oh, yeah. but instead of doing that, which is the specific situations that can be addressed, they want to blanketly accuse the entire enterprise of, of private business and, and of, of corporations, most of whom are good. You know, yes, you have some bad players. You go after those bad players. I suppose you could put that same claim on racism in a way. Most people are not racist, but uh -huh. you have a few who are, and that or a few institutions that are, and those specific institutions can be addressed for their specific actions rather than condemning an entire society. Absolutely, no, you, you make such a good point. And that's why the guillotine in front of Jeff Bezos, the person who erected that guillotine was a former employee, disgruntled, angry, envious. Yeah. Um, we don't empower those people, you know. No. Get some therapy instead, you know. You don't. You don't. You don't call. You don't basically say they're virtuous, and then yeah. take a look at their background and say, "You see, they were underprivileged, and it's your fault." Right. 
So, but Anne, let my listeners and viewers know where they can get your excellent book and, and information. Well, um, the publisher is the sophiainstitute.com or amazon.com. It's already there. In fact, I just got one in the mail from Amazon. Very exciting. So thank you. You're welcome. And I want to thank you very much for joining me this afternoon, Anne. Thank you so much. Anne Hendershot is the author of The Politics of Envy, available at Amazon and at your bookstore. Thanks a lot, Anne, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. It's great to meet you. Same here. Take care. Bye.